Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning, Southbridge. Thank you for joining us. And I want to say a special welcome to moms. Moms, thank you so much for making today this, this worship gathering through the Word and through worship and the elements we're going to share in a little bit. And if you don't have your communion elements, now would be a great time to go grab those. Um, thanks for making this celebration part of your Mother's Day. We are super thankful to you, and I want to pray for you specifically in just a moment. Uh, but everybody, we're, we're going to continue in Psalm 23. We've been doing this series called Divine Invitations and asking the question, what is God inviting us into? And today we're seated at my home. I'm sitting in my dining room right now, and I want to have an intimate gathering as we look at this passage of Scripture. It's an intimate passage of Scripture. where We talk about God has prepared a table before us. And so if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it, Psalm 23. If you need to grab the elements, go ahead. But I'm going to pray right now for moms and for our time in the Word. Father, thank you so much for moms, just for your love for them and for their love for us. And everyone here has a mom. And Father, I pray, God, that you would, you would give a special blessing to them today. For the moms that need to experience your grace because they feel like they're messing up so much, will you let them know that your power is made perfect in their weaknesses, that your grace is sufficient, for the moms that are just pumped to be a mom, I pray that today would be just a fan in the flame of their excitement. And for those that need conviction and those that need encouragement, God, will you do all the things you do through your word, rebuking and training and teaching and empowering and instructing? And will you guide us like a light before our feet, each one of us, into what you're inviting us into next? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we're sitting here in my home right now, and I want you to think about how sometimes conversations the intimacy level of the conversation will change based on the location of the conversation. Like think, for instance, if I bumped into you at the grocery store, then we're going to have one kind of conversation. And if we were gathering together and live worship and we were out in the lobby, that's a different type of conversation. But if you wanted to talk deeper, you'd probably say, you know, Pastor, let's, let's meet at your office, and we'd meet at my office. But if I wanted even deeper intimacy, I'd invite you to my home. I'd say, why don't you come over and we'll talk. And then if I prepared for you, then you'd know you were thought of and you were cared for and I want you to ask yourself this question as we get started in the scriptures today. Have you ever been invited into greater intimacy with someone? And as I was thinking about that for myself this week, my wife and I are coming up on it. In July, it'll be our 20-year wedding anniversary, and we dated for about four years before that. We were engaged for a year, and so we've been together for about 25 years. And so we already had a history when I proposed to her. We already had a relationship. But I was thinking about the day that I proposed to her, and we've talked about the story oftentimes, just how there were all these details that I had planned out, and there was one little thing that I missed, and so it was kind of a metaphor for our marriage. I was ready to marry her. I, I wanted to be with this girl. I was going to be committed to her, and we spent the rest of our lives together, but I wasn't prepared. I wasn't prepared for all that would come, and so what happened that day was uh, we were going to go through. We had dated for four years, and I was going to take her through some of the significant spots, you know, our first date and our first kiss and our favorite restaurant, and our families were going to meet us at the end of the day, and, and I was going to set up a video camera. For those of you who are younger, uh, we didn't just carry video cameras in our pocket back then. It was a big, you know, put it on your shoulder video camera, and you had to put a tape in it, a big recording tape. If you've never seen one of those, ask your parents. They might have someone, one somewhere stuffed away. But I forgot the tape. I had the camera. I forgot the tape. I was ready. I wasn't prepared. And I borrowed the tape from somebody, and I remember when I proposed to her, I got down on my knee. I said every sweet word that I could muster up as, at that age of my life, and I read scriptures to her. I threw the kitchen sink at her, like all the great things about her. Here's some Bible verses, how I want this to be. And then I asked her the question. I said, will you marry me? And as I thought back about it, I didn't know all that I was asking at that moment. But that wasn't just an invitation to commitment. It wasn't just an invitation for us to live in the same house. It wasn't just an invitation 
for us to, to, to be able to do the things married couples do is an invitation to intimacy, to greater intimacy. You think about what is intimacy? Well, intimacy, some people in our culture, we just think that means sex. It doesn't just mean sex. Some people, when they talk about intimacy, they use proximity language. It means we're closer, like physical proximity. But intimacy is really, it's being fully known and fully loved. It's being able to be yourself. You don't have to put your best foot. It's not the first date. You put your best foot forward. We're just, it's who I am. It's who I was in the past. It's who I am right now. It's the direction I'm headed. It's my present self, my past self, my future self. Like, I'm just going to be me and know that you fully accept me. Has anyone ever invited you into that kind of intimacy? So we're doing this series called Divine Invitations. And what we're going to see today in our passage of Scripture is God's inviting us into a greater level of intimacy. If you don't know Jesus, it's to trust Jesus as your Savior. But if you know Him, it's to a greater level of intimacy. And the question you have to ask yourself is, will you accept the invitation? And i got a feeling that a bunch of us are ready, but we might not be, I don't even know if we could be prepared. But what we're going to do today is look at the invitation. So if you've got a copy of the Bible, it's in Psalm 23. And in Psalm 23, just to give you the full context, we've been walking through it over the past several weeks. We've been going kind of slow and the first week, we looked at the first three verses and asked, is the Lord our shepherd? And then we went through last week just one verse, and this week we're going to look at the probably the least popular of all the verses, but some people have said it's the best. It's kind of like dessert. We say the best for last. But look at the whole psalm with me. In the first three verses, it's a psalm of David, who was a shepherd. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And that first week when we looked at this passage, we asked the question, who's your shepherd? And really what we're asking is, who's leading in your life? Who are you following? Who's, who's feeding your mind? Who's restoring your soul? And we saw that only Jesus Christ can actually do that, can restore your soul. And then last week we looked at probably the most popular verse in this whole passage. It's the one that I think draws so many people in times of need. It's, a, it's about going through a dark valley. We talked about how you don't have to fear. In the, in the scariest circumstances in life, you can fear no evil. Because look what it says. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is a through passage. You don't stay. You don't go camp out in the valley. You're not staying in the valley. No matter how bad and how long it lasts, it's a passageway. Even if it's death, it's a passageway into eternal life. And why can we fear no evil? Remember, it says here, not just he, it says you. It gets personal. You are with me because of his presence. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, his protection. But then the metaphor changes in these last two verses. And it becomes this invitation for us to join him in a greater intimacy. Look at what it says in verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now here, there are you know, different Bible scholars debate about in this passage. Has he shifted from no longer being the shepherd, and now he's the host? But here's what we know for sure. The scene has changed. We're no longer in a green pasture. We're no longer in a dark valley. We're now sitting at a table. And think about a table being prepared for you. My wife set this table up for me to be able to preach this message to you today, but... Think about a table the Lord prepares for you. And you think about what do we know about tables in the Bible? They're, they're always a sign of intimacy. Like when you think about in the Old Testament, when, when people would sit down at a table together, it was a bond that was created, a mutual loyalty. And sometimes you even see they were used to, 
to, to bring a covenant together. Read Exodus 24, when the elders come before, they're beholding the Lord, and there's a covenant that's happening with them and God. Or you think about in the New Testament, why is it the religious leaders got so mad at Jesus for being with sinners? Like in Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, there's this guy named Levi, he's a tax collector, nobody likes tax collectors, and Jesus calls him to follow him, he does, and then they have a party at Levi's house, Jesus is the host, and the religious leaders are going, oh, he's a rabbi, how is he sitting with these, these sinners? Because the table fellowship was a time of intimacy. It was a time of acceptance. And so here you got Jesus, this religious teacher they're viewing him as, and he's sitting with these sinners? Yeah. There's an intimacy that happened there. Where you think about, we're going to celebrate communion at the end of this service. The Lord's Supper, when he has that last meal with his disciples, and they're all at the table, and he says, this is the new covenant. And he's doing some important stuff at the table. You think about how that was in the Bible, but the table's still important today. In fact, I was reading, parents, you might listen to this, I was reading a sociologist uh, this week, an excerpt from some of his study in a book by a guy named Terry Smith. Uh, it's called The Hospitable Leader. And the sociologist actually says this, the single most important element in raising kids who are drug-free, healthy, intelligent, kind human beings is frequent family dinners. And he goes on to say, the most important predictor of success for elementary age children is frequent family dinners. The primary factor in shaping vocabulary for younger children is frequent family dinners. The key variable most associated with lower incidence of depression and suicidal thoughts among 11 to 18 year olds is frequent family dinners. Why? Why is that? Because something happens at the table. It's relational. There's an intimacy that takes place at the table. And so before you can answer the question, do you accept God's invitation to intimacy? You've got you to gotta look more at the invitation. You got to examine what is he inviting you into here, and there's a lot. There's a lot to be seen in this passage of scripture, but but there's at least three things I want to point out to you today. As God invites you into intimacy, His invitation is an invitation to God's abundant provision. God's invitation to intimacy with Him is one of abundant provision, and you see it here in this passage with the prepared table, the anointed head, the overflowing cup, His abundant provision here. And so I'd ask you this question: Have you experienced God's provision? But it's one of those things where. Like, if I was going to teach this to you, I could say, like, He provided for you through the cross, His broken body, His shed blood. He's provided for you our daily bread. He's provided for you forgiveness. He's provided for you, and I could list hundred every promise in the Bible is pointed to God's provision for you. It's one thing for me to teach this to you, but God's provision is one of those things you really have to learn by experience. And so I ask you, have you experienced God's provision in your life? It's kind of like I was doing some reading of just articles as I was thinking about this being Mother's Day. And one of the anecdotal articles I saw was a mom just telling she had an 11-year-old son and a 2-year-old daughter, and she was talking about how she was downstairs, and she heard the 11-year-old son upstairs screaming, which moms, I'm sure you've probably heard this before if you've got multiple kids, and she runs upstairs because that's what moms do, and she sees that the 2-year-old's on top of his head pulling his hair. And she comes over, she's just a 2-year-old daughter, and so she grabs the 2-year-old's fingers, pulls them off, and says to the son, it's okay, it's okay, she doesn't know. She doesn't understand how much that hurts you, and she soothes him, pats him on the back, and he kind of nods, and she leaves the room. A couple minutes later, she hears the daughter yelling upstairs, so she runs back upstairs, and he, she's laying on the floor, and she looks over at the son, she, and he says to her, now she knows. In other words, he grabbed her hair, and now she's experienced it herself. See, a lot of things, and moms, you know this with kids. Like, you, tell, you can tell them, don't eat dog food, but then they eat out of the dish. You can tell them, don't drink out of the toilet, but you stand, go in there, and they're standing in the toilet, right? Like, it's just, does this just happen at our house? I think this is all moms. Like, this just, they have to learn these things by experience. God's provision is one of those things you have to learn by experience. Have you experienced God's provision? 
I think about for myself, I could tell you story after story of God providing in my life. Like I, remember, I remember in college, I didn't have the money to go to the college I went to. And I literally was praying every time a bill would be coming due for, for God to provide the money to come, and he always did. I remember one time getting a check from somebody that I worked with who, who was driving through the town that was four hours away. I was waiting tables at a Mexican restaurant, and this manager was just driving through our town and dropped a check in my box. I get these anonymous checks. God's provision. I'd pr- I've prayed for things in the past that no one else knew I was even praying for, and then God shows up and he does it, and you know it's him. And, and, and thinking about you know my wife being at the very beginning of this, praying for this message and talking to her, if, if I asked her, have you experienced God's provision, I know one of the stories she would share. She'd tell you about the time when we first got married, and uh, I was a youth pastor. She was a nurse. We didn't have a beautiful table like this. Like We just were in our first apartment and trying to figure stuff out, and we had a budget and trying to pay off some debt. We were living off one salary and, and paying off debt with the other one, and we had our budget set, and it was real tight for groceries. And she had gone shopping, and because I was a youth pastor, we'd have these kids over at our house for Bible study, and they'd be in our home, and we'd host people. And she had enough money to buy all the stuff we needed, for groceries, but there were all these things she saw that she wanted to buy, the brownie mix and Oreos and just unique things that she wanted to have for appetizers and desserts for when the kids came over, different people came over. We couldn't buy any of them. Didn't have the money. And then uh, a couple days later, she didn't buy that stuff. A couple days later, she's in the parking lot at our church, and this woman drives up, 67-year-old woman, barely knows who we are. She says, I was at the grocery store, and I felt like God laid it on my heart to buy these things for you, and she handed my wife a laundry basket with the brownie mix and the Oreos, and when my wife tells a story, she had tears running down her face, like just because it was God's provision is not only abundant, it's so personal. It was all the things that she had planned on buying were right there in that basket. And by the way, uh, in case you're the lady that bought us that basket and you're still watching us, we used that laundry basket for about 15 years. We didn't have a laundry basket at that point either. And so we were, we were grateful for his abundant provisions. And here in this passage, we get a picture. And God's inviting you into intimacy at his table. He's prepared a table. And there's abundant provision. Look at the passage and what it says in verse 5. You prepare a table before me, but then it says this, in the presence of my enemies? (laughs) What? Like, I'm thinking to myself, if I want to have a great meal, I'm not inviting them. Like, I don't know who your enemies are, but the people that have hurt you, have said stuff about you, the people who have caused harm in your life, people that are opposing things that you're trying to do right now in your life, that doesn't seem very life-giving. Like, if I want to have a feast, if I want to have a great table, a great experience... And enemies? That's who it says here that, that God brings to the table. And think about that with David. And it was like, if David's writing this, he's been in the presence of enemies before and seen God's protection. See, some people talk about this passage of Scripture like it must be a victory banquet and the enemies are watching and they're just jealous of all the food that David's able to eat and the intimacy he's able to have and they can't partake. Maybe. We don't know. Maybe he's there with them. Dallas Willard, in his book, Life Without Lack, he talks about Psalm 23 throughout that book. You can check that book out. It's great. But he says that he imagines that David actually serves the enemies there. We don't know that. The passage doesn't say that. But one of the things that's hard for us when we come to a passage like this is we don't understand some of the background, some of the culture. And Bedouin hospitality, it's one thing to invite somebody in. Like, if I invite you to my house and we have a meal together and, you know, we'll sit down and I'll provide food and we're going to talk, but there comes a time where it's like, time for you to go. Like, if you're familiar with the South, a lot of times people invite you to their house. It's like, you should stop by any time. But if you actually stop by, they're like, what is that person doing stopping by my house? Like, we don't really mean some of that stuff. They took it so personal. In this Bedouin society, you invite somebody into your tent, you give them a meal, shelter, but you'd also provide protection. And so we see an illustration of this in, 
And a story that if you read it, like if you haven't read the Old Testament, you need to read this story. It's almost unthinkable what happens. In Genesis chapter 19, there's this guy named Lot. He's living in a, a city called Sodom. And these two guys come into the town, and they're, they're in the town square, and they're actually angels. And, and he says, you've got to come in my house because he knows they're in danger. He invites them into the house, and the men of the city come to assault these guys. And then it says that Lot comes outside, and if you read the passage, he closed the door behind him. He's putting himself between the threat and the people that are inside. He's willing to lay his own life down to protect these guys. And then he says, here's the unthinkable part. He says, why don't you take my children? And he offers his own children. It doesn't happen in the passage, but he offers his children in that. It's so unthinkable to our minds. That, like, you're, I'm, like, if you come to my house and have a meal, that's great, but I'm not giving one of my kids so that you can be safe. But it's so unthinkable to us as Americans, but then you come to the New Testament. You see, that's exactly what God did for us. You talk about abundant provision. Not just, we weren't his guests, we were his enemies. This is while you were a sinner, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his own child, his own son, to die for you. It's unthinkable to us. It's his abundant provision. So you get this table here, and the enemies are present at the table, and but that's not all. It says that you anoint my head. You anoint my head with oil. The blessing might be healing oil, like a shepherd for sheep. It might be anointing oil, like for a king, setting somebody aside for specific tasks, but it's special treatment. It's a blessing. And it says, my cup overflows. You think about cups in the Bible, and we see them in some different spots. One of them, probably the most famous passage in the, in the Bible that involves cups, is when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying. He says, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup, and he's talking about the cup of God's wrath. See, cups in the Bible, it's not so much about a cup itself, it's about what's inside the cup. It's the substance of the cup that's symbolic. It's a cup of wrath that he's talking about in the garden. But cups in the Bible aren't just of wrath. There's cups of blessing as well. Like, for instance, think about David's life. If you read, he had that, so one of the famous things about David's life is like, kills the giant, right? And then there's the other story that people think of is when he sinned with Bathsheba. But in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, what ends up happening is there's this guy, his name is Nathan, and he comes to confront David in his sin, and he starts off by telling him a story. He says, there's a rich guy and a poor guy. Rich guy's got a whole bunch of sheep, all kinds of herds. Poor guy has one little ewe lamb. And when he's describing how much the poor man loves the ewe lamb, he says he holds him in his arms, treats him like a daughter. He feeds him his own morsels. And he says he lets him drink from his cup. It's a cup of blessing. And so in Scripture, we see both. We've got cups of wrath. We've got cups of blessing. But then what we see happens in the Scripture is what Jesus does in the New Testament. He does accept the cup of wrath. But what he does when he takes the cup of wrath is he's absorbing all of God's wrath at the cross for us. It's poured out completely upon him. Why is that? That's so that we, who are, are dead in our trespasses and sins, our sins are like scarlet, right? The scriptures say that in the book of Isaiah. And so that when we receive Christ, when we place our faith in Him, we place our trust in Jesus, He gives us the blessing of salvation. So He pours salvation into our lives, and though our sins were as scarlet, they become white as snow. And here we see that it's a, a blessing of overflowing abundance. And you've got to ask yourself the question, if God's poured forgiveness into my life, He's poured His love into my life, He's given me salvation, and we read in the New Testament, like, then that leads to the fruit of the Spirit, of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. He's poured that into my life to overflowing. Why? Why give me more than I need? Because here's something to consider. And I know you're at home, you might want to amen this. Is that God's got a pitcher, 
that's bigger than our cup. And so he can continue to pour blessing into our lives. And that's what he does. And that's part of it, coming into intimacy with him as he continues to fill us up. But remember in our context here, as he talks about this overflowing cup, our enemies are there. And so I've got a few more cups. I thought it might be awkward for me to invite people and then for them to find out in that moment why they were invited. But we've got a few more cups here. And you think about God filling, if he fills my cup up to overflowing, it's so that it may be, maybe it's so that people see how much God blesses me and they're jealous. Some people believe that about this passage, but maybe it's so that those things will overflow from my life in the lives of others. And so if, I, if God's filling up my cup with forgiveness, maybe it's so that forgiveness overflows in the life of somebody else. He's filling my life up. Like you think about right now where we're at with this the crisis that's going on, and I know things are beginning to open up again, things are starting to happen, but we're in a famine of hope. There's so many people that are scared, they need hope. And so as a follower of Jesus Christ, he's filling your cup up with hope. Maybe it's so that that will overflow in the life of somebody else. Hope. Filling you up with love so that it will overflow in the life of your enemies, your neighbors, other people that need to see what you have in your intimacy with God. And so if that's true, then think about this. That means if we don't accept God's invitation and intimacy with Him, it's not just us that misses out. It's the ripple effect that plays in the lives of the people around us. See, he, he says our cup overflows. He anoints our head with oil. He brings us to this table that He's prepared for us. Why? Because He's inviting us into intimacy of abundant provision. But it's not just that. He's also, this invitation is an invitation God's invitation to intimacy is an invitation to his relentless pursuit of us. He's relentlessly pursuing us. Where do I get that? Well, look at it here in Psalm 23 and in verse 6. It says there that he's following us with something here. Look what it says. Surely, so this is a guarantee, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. So where in the world do I get pursued from in that passage? Well, here's why. Because follow there doesn't mean like goodness and mercy are tagging along like, you know, it's kind of bounce around behind. I lead through life, and goodness and mercy are following me around. The word for follow there could actually be translated in Hebrew, pursue. It's coming after. So think about what that means. That means God's coming after you. Now think about that for a second. God's coming after me? I remember one time I was talking with a friend, and we hadn't seen each other in a while, and I had had a lot of things happen in my life. It had been about eight to ten months since we had seen each other. And we sat down, and I shared all these events with him. And when I was done talking, I remember thinking, well, that is a lot. And then I looked at him, and he's one of those guys that he, doesn't, he thinks before he speaks, right? Like, since I'm, I, sometimes I just start talking and leave with my mouth, and so I really respect people to do this. And he's, he just kind of paused, but then I was getting like, anxious, like, what are you thinking? What do you think about all that? What do you think God's doing? So I asked. He paused. And he said, the phrase that keeps coming on my mind, Scott, is God's coming after you. And when he said it, I could feel the hairs on my arm stand up. Like I got the chills. And I thought, I'm, a, I'm already a follower of Jesus. What do you mean he's coming out? He already has me, doesn't he? Like, maybe he doesn't have all of my life. Like, what does that even mean? And I'm, to be honest with you, I was a little scared. Like, what's going to happen when he catches me if he's coming after me? But then, but then he comes to a passage like this, and it says, what is it that's coming after you? It's his goodness. And what's his goodness? His goodness. Remember, every good and perfect gift comes from above. When, when God reveals his glory to Moses in Exodus 33 and 34, it's his goodness that passes before his faith. God is good. And then it says here, mercy, mercy. Mercy is interesting because the word there, some of your translations say love. The word there for mercy is probably the most famous word of all the Hebrew words. It's hesed. I remember when I was in, in seminary, I, I had to take a class on Hebrew. It was in the book of Ruth. 
It was a 15-week class, and I took it over the summer in five weeks. And I had people ask me, I said, did you learn Hebrew? I was like, no, I didn't learn Hebrew. I got through the class, but I learned the word hesed. The word hesed, you'll see translated different ways all throughout the Bible. Sometimes it's his loyal love. Sometimes it's love. Sometimes it's mercy. Sometimes it's kindness. Sometimes it talks about his covenant-keeping love, but that's what's coming after you. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, the way the New Testament talks about this, is that Jesus came from heaven to earth, and it says in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek. He's on a seeking mission, pursuing you, to seek and save that which was lost. But then you might be a believer, and you think, well, I trusted Christ, and so he got me, right? So that's done, right? No. Read Luke chapter 15, and you get the story where Jesus is telling the story about a shepherd and sheep, and there's a hundred sheep, and one of them goes off, and we're like sheep. We're prone to wander, especially when we're in the green pastures, and, and he comes out, and he gets the sheep. He's still coming after you. He keeps coming after you. It's a constant pursuit. It's like, I can't stop pursuing my wife just because she said yes the day I proposed. We've been together 25 years. It's, it should be a daily pursuit. I don't do it every day, but it should be a daily pursuit, so i got to keep coming, and I do keep coming after her. So I'm coming after her heart. And she changes. Dynamics change. Circumstances change. Life changes. And so there's a continual pursuit, and there's more to know. And God's pursuing you, and he's coming after you more. In fact, if you read the scriptures, throughout the scriptures, God talks about himself like a husband pursuing a bride. The problem is we're an unfaithful bride. In the Old Testament, he talks to Israel about that. And he says, your sin, he calls it spiritual adultery. But he's this, this spouse that keeps coming after his wife, his adulterous wife. In fact, it comes to a climax that one of the most vivid stories is what he does in the real life of a guy named Hosea, one of his prophets in the Old Testament. And then he goes to this guy, Hosea, and he says, this is God's man. Like, think about it. He's a holy guy. He's following God. God speaks to this person. He says, I want you to marry a whore. Yeah, I really said that word. It's in the Bible. He says, I want you to marry a whore. She's going to be unfaithful to you, and I want you to keep loving her because I want you to know what it's like for me to love these people. But there's this, this scene that happens in Hosea chapter 3. They've been married. She's been unfaithful. It's probably been years. It's probably been a long time since they've even seen each other. And she's being brought out. And Tim Keller talks about it, that she's not being sold as a prostitute anymore. She's being sold in the slave market, probably by her pimp. And so she comes out, and if her head hasn't been shaved, she's probably not looking. Her, her hair's over her face. and She's on an auction block is the language that's used there and the price that's being paid there. And can you imagine? Her name's Gomer. Imagine being Gomer, and you haven't seen or heard your husband a long time, and they start bidding on you, 10 shekels, 15 shekels, and then you hear that voice you haven't heard in a long time, because what, what God tells Hosea to do is go and buy her back. i got to buy back my own wife? Yeah, that's what a Redeemer does. Your Redeemer is pursuing you throughout your life. He's coming after you with his chesed, his his loyal love, his covenant love. He says, there's a new covenant, Jesus said, at the Passover meal, the covenant of my blood. I poured out my blood for you. I'll give my life for you. I want to provide abundantly for you salvation and forgiveness and grace, and I'm coming. I was communicating with one of our strategic ministry partners, a good friend of mine, Becky McDonald, started a ministry. It's an international ministry called Women at Risk International, and what they do is they rescue women and children out of human trafficking. In fact, oftentimes in the past when we would gather in person, I'd say, if you're a guest here today, if you fill out the connection card, we're going to make a donation to help rescue kids. It's through that ministry. And I was asking her, I said, do you oftentimes see moms? This was Mother's Day. I said, do you oftentimes see moms doing the pursuit? She said, oh, all the time. They're constantly going after their daughters when their daughters get taken. And she told me this one story. They were down in Central America, and they were at this small clinic. And they had taken a couple of American doctors there to, to do some treatment for people that come out of traumatic experiences. And the clinic itself was really small, and so they were overwhelmed that American doctors would even come there. 
And uh, they just felt humbled by that because usually they just go to important people and big ministries, and this was a small one. She said, we went out to the waiting area, the lobby of the, all these girls that have been trafficked, and they're at this clinic. And she said, oftentimes what I do is I call a local church, and I call this local church. And I said, will you send over a pastor to do some counseling or preach or whatever they decide to do? Will you just send them over here? And these two pastors showed up, but they didn't preach, and they didn't counsel. One of them had a guitar, and they sang. And she said, Scott, it was tangible, the healing power of these, past, these men. These women have been hurt by men, by men's hands, and now these men are not touching them at all. They're singing these words. It was like God was reigning over that lobby. And then there was this older woman that had come with them, and she was going around and praying with each person. And there was this one family there. It was a mom and a son and their daughter. And the daughter had been kidnapped, and the mom went and got her. And then she got kidnapped again by the same person. The mom went and got her again, and then the kidnapper came to their house and shot the mom, shot the brother, and then cut the daughter up, and they're in this clinic waiting for these doctors to come, and the, the daughter was crying. But she said they weren't tears of sorrow. She was weeping tears of joy because she couldn't believe these doctors had traveled from America. The, the Women at Risk International staff had come and traveled all this way, that this clinic was there, that these pastors were seeing all the things that were happening, that her own mother took a bullet for her. It's because she sensed the pursuit. Let me tell you something. God's coming after you. His invitation to intimacy with him is an invitation to abundant provision. It's an invitation to relentless pursuit. Because it says here, all the, day, he's, all the days of my life, he's coming after you all the days of your life. But it's an invitation to a perfect place as well. Look at what he says, the last part of this verse in Psalm 23 in, in verse 6. It says right there, he says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever or for length of days. And we get this image in this psalm and throughout the Bible of a journey, right? Like, I'm going to travel through the valley. I'm going to go through the green pastures and through the valley of the shadow of death. And where do we end up? And like, Abraham gets called as the father of our faith. He gets called out of, you know, in Genesis chapter 12. It's like, come to a land where you know, to a land you don't know. The Israelites wandering through the wilderness. When we talk about Christianity, a lot of times we talk about a walk with Jesus. Jesus had a guy say to him one time, he said, I'm going to come follow you. And he says, foxes have holes and birds have nests. I don't have a place to lay my head. We read in Philippians chapter 3 that, that, we're not, that our citizenship is not here on earth, that our citizenship is in heaven, that we're on a journey to another place, and it's a perfect place. One of my daughters, she's 10 years old, she was telling me the other day, she was talking to a friend of hers, a little kid, another little kid, and the little kid said, if you do a great job here on earth, you get a second chance to come back here and live on earth again. When my daughter told me that, I thought, that's terrible. Like, come back here? Like where people chase you down when you're out on a jog, shoot you the shotgun? Come back here where people are being trafficked? Come back here where kids are dying of starvation? Like, who wants to come back here? This place is messed up. My daughter said to, to her friend, she said, the Bible says that if you trust Jesus as your Savior, he died for your sins, rose from the dead. If you trust him as your Savior, then you go to a place called heaven. This kid hadn't heard about that. And she said, it's got streets of gold. And he, she said, his eyes got huge. So there's no criminals there. There was no bad stuff happening there. And she was, and nobody's dying. There's no pain and there's no tears. And the best part, God's there. I'm so proud of her. She gets it. There's this other place. And you realize that people who walk by faith, people who accept this invitation into intimacy with God, that's what they're living towards. It's not, it's not this place. It's not about here. It's not about now. There's another place. And you see, I talk about Abraham. You know, Abraham gets talked about in the book of Hebrews. And you know what it says? He was looking to another place. 
And so that's what motivated him. It wasn't the land, it wasn't the promised land. Let me read you what it says in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about what faith is in verse 1. It says, uh, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then it describes all these people that live by faith, not just Abraham. But if you read it, read Hebrews chapter 11. It gives a bunch of examples, but then it talks about Abraham in verse 8. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was, he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. And then listen to this. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And talked about some other people, but then in verse 13 it says this. These, not just Abraham, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them. Faith is evidence of things hoped for, faith evidence of things not seen, you know, anticipation of these things, this hope that's there. And it says... Having not seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, and here's why I'm reading this to you, as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them not just a house, a city. Jesus talks about in John chapter 14, I go prepare a place for you. It's a perfect place. And we read about it in the book of Revelation. It's a place where evil can't enter in. Revelation chapter 21. We read that every, there's going to be people, you talk about there's no room for racism in the church or in the gospel. There's going to be people in heaven. In Revelation chapter 5, from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, and you're going to have unlimited time to get to know them. And I think about David writing this about going home and David's own life. He loses people in his life, just like we do. He talks about when he loses a child from his sin with Bathsheba. People say, why'd you stop fasting? And he says, well, I can't bring the child back, but I can go to him. Like, we're going to be with people that we've lost. We're going to be with people that, like in the Bible, we're gonna, Moses is going to be there. Like people in the, the Bible, that interesting people, people we've never heard of in foreign countries have died of martyrs. Like, we're going to have forever to get to know them. But the best part is not the people. Like in the Garden of Eden, they could hear God. And it says in Revelation, Revelation 22, we're going to see him face to face. That God is there. And what he's inviting you into is intimacy with him. Are you ready? Some of you might be ready. There's no way you could be fully prepared. But like when I got down on my knee and I proposed to my wife, I was inviting her into greater intimacy. She had to, she had to say yes. And so do you. If you want greater intimacy with God, you've got to accept his invitation. Come to his table. He's inviting you into. You can't be prepared. Your enemies might be there. There's going to be an overabundant blessing of what, though? Because we know his plan for us is not primarily physical. It's primarily spiritual of forgiveness, of restoration. He restores our soul. He leads us to, to still waters, but also through the valley. And he's going to grow you closer to him through that. Will you accept his invitation to intimacy? If you're not yet a follower of Jesus... That means you need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you have trusted Jesus, that means going into a deeper walk with Him because He keeps pursuing you and He keeps inviting you into more. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you can ask Him to be your Savior right now. And I'm going to pray a prayer in just a moment. I'm going to challenge you to pray this prayer with me. It's acknowledging sin before Him and then asking Him to forgive me of sin and make my sin, which was, which was as red as scarlet, it was dark for all of sin and falls short of the glory of God, but He can make it as white as snow. He can restore you and give you new life. He can do that right now. Will you pray with me right now this, if you want to trust Jesus as your Savior? Dear God, I acknowledge my sin before you. Just acknowledge your sin to Him. And right now, 
I want to ask Jesus Christ to be my Savior, to forgive me of my sins, cleanse me of all unrighteousness. I surrender my life to you, invite you in. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you just prayed that prayer, I want to encourage you, that's the most important decision you could ever make in your life. And we want to give you some information about how to grow in that relationship with Jesus. Would you just text the word Jesus to the number on your screen right now? And some of you are already followers of Jesus, and I just want to pray for you for greater intimacy for you to have with God. Father, I thank you for for those that are already following you. I thank you that they're here with us today, worshiping you through song and learning from your word. And I pray you would grow them through circumstances, through other people, through your word, through your church family, and a greater intimacy with you today. I pray if there's sin that needs to be repented of, that right now would be a moment of repentance. I pray for those that are hurting or have questions, that right now we'll be able to come alongside them. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.